0: Tom Brady, 44 years of old, the GOAT of football, at least professional football, the greatest of all time. Nobody argues about that much anymore. He retired, and he retired, he said, on the basis of family and other things he wanted to do, and he stayed retired for about a month. (laughs) And then he has come back and said he's going to continue to play for Tampa Bay, and people ask the question, why did he come back? And that's an easy answer. He had to go back to work because gas prices got so high. I mean, anybody could figure that out. And then we know our savings. Someone said that what you could buy for A dollar, two years ago, you can now buy for 68 cents, rather the other way around. It takes a dollar today to buy what two years ago we could buy for 68 cents. I don't know if the math is accurate, but we understand that all that we have, all we possess, our retirements, our savings, have been greatly diminished in value because of inflation. Savings, big word. In Christianity, perhaps the biggest word that encompasses all of our doctrine is the word salvation. All the other basic fundamentals that we believe come under the broad heading of salvation. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the overriding theme is salvation. The Germans called it Hageschitta, that's your word for salvation history. In other words, the Bible tells us a story of how God has worked through individuals, through families, through nations, all the way through Christ, all the way today, from Genesis to Revelation. It is the historical story of salvation. Salvation. When Jesus said, be saved, what was he talking about? When I was probably, I don't know, five years old, I was learning how to swim. You learn a dead man's float. and Then you learn how to swim with your head in the water. And I'd got right back right to that point. I think it was the 4th of July. My dad took me to a swimming pool. And it was just full of people. And I was still trying to learn to swim. And I would swim and go stand up in the three feet of water. And I would swim to him and stand up. But finally, he was talking to someone. And, and I just swam out. and. I got over my head for the first time and I went down and I went all the way to the bottom and I came floundering up and trying to swim and I went down again and and I bumped into somebody they didn't know and I was floundering and I went down and I was drowning. I I knew then as a five-year-old that this was it and all of a sudden a strong arm grabbed me and picked me back up, my dad me. My father had saved me from drowning. So we understand the word salvation. When Jesus used it, be saved, he was talking about being whole. That's the etymology of the word. It's the idea that we're broken up into pieces and when we're saved, we're brought back together all the pieces that have been broken and scattered and we become whole. And in the footprints, in the margin, you'd see the word health, H-E-A-L-T-H. When we're saved, we are healthy. When man fell in the garden, creation fell, everybody fell, all human beings fell thereafter, and therefore sin and death came into the world. And then we know salvation came, when Jesus Christ took care of sin on the cross and cooked care of death at the resurrection on Easter. And so we see the word salvation is a big, expansive word. And therefore, when I talk about it, is that salvation in Jesus Christ to you idealism? Or realism? As Christians, are we idealist? Or as Christians, are we realist? It's a good question. A lot of people think we're idealist. It's a philosophy, it's a belief, it's an idea. It's something we want to be true. And in one sense, we are idealist, but in a greater sense, we are realist. Somebody said, well, I don't know about this business of God if you could prove him scientifically. And a lot of people like to put God in a test tube, and we know you cannot do that. But I think even the scientists realize today that all of realism, all of fact, is not based on tangible stuff, is it, you know? It's based on stuff we can Touch and measure and say, this, this, this is real. And the intangible is not real. We know that is not true. In fact, you can take a scientist, and he can take a big old net and throw it out in the middle of the sea of reality, and the scientist pulls in that net and said everything in that net is real. What he may not realize that a lot of things that slip through that net in that net as he threw it in the sea of reality. Those things that slip through are more real than the things that he could touch and see and measure. Can you put love in a test tube? Can you put friendship in a test tube? Can you put compassion? All the real, real stuff you cannot see, you cannot measure. So we look at Christianity, we say, oh, you're idealists. No, we are realists. Jesus Christ was a realist more than he was an idealist. Ideas and philosophies become real when they are lived out and they are verified and they're proven. For example, how do we know that what we read in this Bible is really accurate, how it's really true? Well, I could spend a lot of time, and I have before, verifying the veracity and the truth of the Bible, but let's just take the person who wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual. By the way, it's not Paul, and it's not John. It's Dr. Luke. He wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts more than any other author, a scientist, and he tells us interestingly in Luke chapter number one, his method of writing history. And by the way, you can't beat this. You can't find anybody who has studied history who is a historian can better describe the way to really accurately report events in time and in space. Here's what Dr. Luke said. He said, "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. He is saying in the King James, things that have been fulfilled. He said, all the prophecy of the Old Testament has been fulfilled. He said, now somebody has compiled all these things that have been fulfilled. But just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Is that valid enough? And servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me, said Dr. Luke, as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Does that sound like an honest, accurate, scholarly historian to you? What you may not know is that people for thousands of years have tried to disprove the historicity, the book of Acts, name, places, bodies of water, individuals, what he said in Luke. They have spent miles of time, agnostics and skeptics, trying to find anything that Luke wrote down that was inaccurate, and I can stand here today and tell you there's not a scholar who has ever lived and ever will live who has disproven one word that Dr. Luke has written in Holy Scripture. So we're talking about not idealism, we're talking about reality. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is a very materialistic faith. Unlike all the other religions, it is very materialistic. It is based in history. The word, Lagos, became flesh. It didn't stay in heaven, it came down to earth. That which was transcendent, we cannot see, became imminent. We see this in Bethlehem when God revealed himself to man. Who did he first reveal himself to? Shepherds, the nobodies, the nothings, the bottom of the economic ladder. Those who weren't even legitimized to testify in a court of law in the first century. That's who Jesus was revealed to and the angel said, he has come, he has come, the light has come, the Messiah has come. And what did those shepherds say? Let's get up and go and see this thing. If Jesus had appeared, or God had brought him into earth and he'd appeared to the scholars and the priests and the scribes and the philosophers, they would say, oh, let's go look up and see if this is right, this is valid. But no, no, he appeared to the shepherds and they were down to earth folks. They said, we want to go see this thing. It's real. And they did. Jesus calling his first apostles, what did he say? come and follow me, I'm gonna tell you what we're gonna do, what we're gonna say, how we're gonna live. He said, no, come and see, experience for yourself. That's not idealism, that's reality. That's not hocus-pocus stuff, that is fact. And the fact that God revealed himself in Jesus Christ as a human being, the divine became human. Are we ready for that? That's what happened. That is real, that is factual, it is based on history. If God had decided to make himself known to the Greeks, they were philosophers. They said, let's just discuss this and see about this. But he didn't, he revealed himself to the Jews, the Bible tells us, because they saw salvation coming in history, in fact, in reality. How important this is, ladies and gentlemen, for us to understand when somebody says, oh, you Christian, uh, you, you're, you're just idealists. No, no, nah, we are realists. It's based on fact and truth and experience and life and flesh and blood. That takes our faith and makes it ever, ever, ever so valid and vivid and practical and alive. So, we are studying salvation. And you say, this salvation, is it, you know, is it real, what is it? No, it is absolutely real, it's absolutely valid because the kingdom of God has come. Read in Revelation, last book in the Bible. Your wives will help you find it, gentlemen. Revelation. Read the interesting passage in the first chapter, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, get this, who is and who was and who is to come. When Jesus came into this world in the time and space, God came in human flesh. The kingdom came with him. The first words we have Jesus speaking, there in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, the kingdom of heaven is here. Luke, he starts the same way. His first words he uttered after coming out of the wilderness of temptation, he said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is here. And by the way, in the Bible, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable, most of the time, couple exceptions. They're interchangeable. So he's saying the kingdom has come. The kingdom is like gravity, ladies and gentlemen. The kingdom came in Jesus. But the kingdom also was, we read in Revelation. Before time, the kingdom was there. Now, what is the kingdom of God? We've heard it sung already magnificently. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom came in Jesus Christ and Jesus taught kingdom principles. What do you think the Sermon on the Mount is? Matthew 5, 6, 7. Some people say, well, it's not realistic. Nobody can live up to all the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Oh yes. We won't be perfect in it any more than we're perfect in not breaking one of the Ten Commandments, but there are the principles of the kingdom of heaven. If you don't like the Sermon on the Mount, you're sure not gonna find heaven and you're not gonna be at home if you happen to get there. Because Jesus said if we live according to these principles, your life is built on not sand, but rock. Big difference, on rock, so these are kingdom principles for us to incorporate into our lives as we come to Christ. Now, the church is not synonymous with the kingdom of God. The Catholics believe it is and it's not. The kingdom of God is here. It is here, it is permanent, it is in existence, it is real. And in the kingdom there is the church, and we in the body of Christ who are in Christ, the arms, the hands, the ministry of the church in the world in which we live, we are seeking for the church to be more like the kingdom on this earth as the kingdom exists in heaven. Very important to understand it. Somebody says, we're gonna grow the kingdom. You don't grow the kingdom, you grow the church. The kingdom is, bam, it's here, it's real. Where God is king and Jesus is Lord, there is the kingdom right now, right here. The kingdom was before the foundation of the world. It existed before time and space came into existence. The kingdom will be. It is coming, that's when Jesus comes and he establishes a new heaven and a new earth and we have, thank goodness, our resurrection bodies in which we're able to live in that eternal kingdom and the kingdom also is. It was, it is, and it is coming. And the kingdom of God is, the Bible talks about it, Jesus in the parables, he said the kingdom of God is like a a mustard seed, little thing, it's planted, Over time, it grows into a big tree. The kingdom of God is like leaven. You put leaven in bread, and in time, the leaven does its thing in bread. Also, the kingdom is like a storm, it comes suddenly. And there's a man plowing, he finds a pearl of great price, and he sells everything to have it. It was a sudden thing. So it is a seed and it's a storm. It comes quietly, it comes suddenly, but the kingdom is here, the kingdom will come, and the kingdom was. The kingdom of God is a reality. We've been studying about salvation. Romans chapter eight is all about salvation. The whole Bible is about salvation, but particularly Romans chapter eight says, This is what it means to be saved, to be in Christ. What does it mean? It also tells us, gives us a sense of security. But incidentally, if you happen not to be in Christ, you just use the title of Christian or you hope or you suppose or it's an ideal that you have, you might be. Oh, no, no, no. It also proves those who are not in the kingdom who are not in the church. Here's what you have if you're in the church. Here's what you don't have. You're not saved, you're not salvaged if this is not real to you. And the whole figure there is a man or a woman or a teenager in Christ. Christ in you, Christ in me. That is the kingdom of God in every life. We are kingdom citizens. And the Holy Spirit, we learn in chapter eight, gives us the ability to live out our citizenship to practice what we say we believe. Somebody said, well, I believe this, but I live like this. It doesn't work like that, does it? We live on the basis of what we genuinely believe. I say, oh, I believe this, but no, no, no. Our true belief is based on how we live, and that needs to match up, and it did with Jesus. Jesus' words were not different from his life. His life verified his words, and his words verified his life. See, that is not idealism. That is realism, lived out in flesh and blood. So we go to Romans chapter eight. We know Paul had a bad start in Romans seven, didn't he? He said, you know, I'm all scattered even though I'm in Christ. And then he said, but there's no condemnation because Jesus Christ has provided forgiveness for me and a a new birth. And then he says, how can you tell what someone is safe? They're saved. He said, it's by your mindset. And Paul said, when I was all scattered out, Romans 7, got his priorities wrong, his life wrong. He said, when I was all scattered, I got put back together because I had a renewed mind. A renewed mind, your mindset on things of God are the things of flesh, on the spirit of the flesh. We set our mind. And then we went on through chapter number eight, and this is review for so many of us. He says, let me tell you what I know. And he tells us two things that he knows. Look at Romans chapter eight. I've about worn out the page here in my Bible. Romans chapter eight, verse 22. He tells us what we know. He said, for we know we know that the whole creation groans and suffers with pains of childbirth, and we went over that. We talked about groaning and glory. They go together, don't they? So many times we groan, it leads to glory. What is glory? Remember, what glory is? It's weight. Glory means weight. We, we groan, we get weightier, and all of creation groans. What? What key does it groan in? The minor key? Every noise that creation makes is in the minor key. The waves, the animals, everything in the minor key. And so the creation is groaning. What does the groan sound like? Childbirth. The groans that mothers make when a child is born. Oh, the pain, the groaning. That's what creation is doing. Longing for the day when Christ will come and this whole universe will go back to a pristine condition. Man, what what a... Beautiful, magnificent thing that'll be. So creation groans, we've looked at that. And we as Christians groan, why? Because we have this limited body that he's given us that's built only for time, not for eternity. So we're grown in a sense of longing for that total feeling of, there's our word again, health. Our total feeling of wholeness, which comes after we leave this earth. What a wonderful thing. We groan in one sense. And then the Holy Spirit groans as the Holy Spirit prays for you and me. We know how to pray. The Holy Spirit knows how to pray. Remember the principle there. It's so important. The Holy Spirit prays for us as we would pray if we knew everything God knows. (laughs) We would pray like that. Because God sees the whole smithereens. Is that a word? The whole thing the beginning to the end and all in the middle. And so we see, then we come to our strong, strong verse that all of us like, Romans 8, 28. Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? But understand, let me say in the beginning, Romans 8:28 is valid and can be claimed only when it is put in the context of the kingdom of God here and the church that is here and the context that we meet the conditions that are in Romans eight twenty-eight. here they are. Paul says, we know, this is the big knowledge, by the way, it's a big thing to know. We know that all things work together for good. Doesn't mean everything's good. Oh, it means, oh no, everything's not good. There's evil in the world, there there is conflict, there is is terrible things going on in the world in your life and no, but all things work together and that's like a recipe. Uh, I, I first looked at this scripture months ago and I hate to tell you what I was gonna do. I was gonna bake a cake up here, now I don't cook, but I was gonna get all the ingredients of a cake and I looked up some things with baking soda, baking powder, flour, salt, sugar, milk. I mean, I, I tried to get some of the basic working of And I was gonna literally bake a cake for you, and then we'd have it served after you leave. <laughs> and I, not this cake, but other cakes we'd made the same way. And I would explain in this that all things work together Not individually, flour by itself is not tasty, I can tell you that much, but all put together and baked, they work out for good. But for a lot of logistical reasons, you'll not be subject to that cake today, but the principle is still there. All things work together for good for those who what? Love God. They asked Jesus, Well, what commandments are we to keep? He said, love the Lord thy God with with everything you got. Mind, body, soul, spirit, that's the first thing. So all things work together for good for those who genuinely love God and those who are the called, C-A-L-L-E-D. That means those who've responded to the call of God in Christ. Those who are in Christ, those who are Christian. And then the last thing, according to his purpose. In other words, all things work together for good. I love God. I'm called. I'm in Christ. Oh, yeah. But then the other thing is, according to his purpose, I'm also seeking to live led by the Holy Spirit, which permeates chapter 8 in the way that God would have me to live and conform to his purpose and will for my life according to his purpose. So, all things work together for good? Yes, for those who love God, those who are the call, according to his purpose, they are seeking his will. And now we can claim that tremendous verse in the context of the kingdom and in the context of the church. People ask all the time in so many different ways, in this broken moment of history, In which you and I are now living. This broken moment in time, because everywhere we look, things seem to be broken down, destroyed. Just one little thing here, I say to you. A lot of things I don't understand about the godlessness we see, especially in the White House and in Washington. I can't comprehend that, but that's where we are in so many areas of life today and it's heartbreaking. I can tell you something else. Our governor has said, oh, we're down there, we're rebuilding the wall of the state of Texas. You know how much safe we built as of week before last, two miles. At this rate, the wall will be finished when we're about 150 years old. Something is wrong with the mentality and the morality of those we put in places of government. But in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, Caesarea Philippi had a retreat, Headwaters of the Jordan River. I've been there. I'd love to take you there with me Thanksgiving. Jesus took his apostles for a time of discipleship and rebuilding. In the context, he asked them, well, who does everybody say that I am? You know, who do they say that I am? So, well, they, they say that you're Elijah. They say you're a prophet. Some people say you're John the Baptist. And, But he says, I want to know, Jesus said. In realism, not idealism. In fact, not in fable or who do you say that I am? And Samuel and Peter said, Thou the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, paraphrase, you don't have enough sense in and of yourself to have figured that out, but the Holy Spirit put words in your mouth, and what you said came of the Spirit when you said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, on that rock, what is that rock? It's his profession of faith. It's the fact he'd come to be a man in Christ. That's the rock. Just own that rock. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, wait a minute, just wait a minute. Hell is a real place. Hell is a place where God is not there. It's a place of a punishment. God doesn't send anybody to hell. If you think God's gonna send you to hell, he's not. We make that choice on this life when we reject God, and reject Christ, and then we decide about our eternal destiny. But hell is a place where God is not. Now, but let me ask you a question. On this rock, this profession of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not keep the church out. The gates of hell will not keep the church out of those places that God is not honored, God is not believed, or Jesus cannot be admitted, or Jesus is not wanted. And in these places that are behind the gates of hell in this world, if you get over there and you start witnessing and talking about God and Christ the church, you'll be marginalized, you'll be slandered, you'll be persecuted, and you may even be prosecuted. Now, right now in time, where are the gates of hell? I'll tell you where one is. The gates of hell are right at the front door of our school system. K through 12, our college and university, there is a gate of hell because I can guarantee you, God is not accepted, Christ is not honored inside the school system of the United States of America. (laughs) Where is another gate of hell? It's right at the gate of our companies and our corporations. They are woke to the extreme and I can tell you, you can't, you'll be challenged if you wear a cross many places. You'll be challenged if you talk about Jesus. The gates of hell are right there before companies and corporations in our culture today. Where else are the gates of hell? The gates of hell are right there with the entertainment, with Hollywood, With all the other places, they're right there with all of our media. There are the gates of hell because on the other side, Jesus Christ is not welcome and a word of God will not be tolerated. There's the gate of hell. Where else is the gate of hell? The gate of hell is where most of our... County and city and state and national government, White House, they have built the gates of hell and don't bring Jesus and Christ and his kingdom principles in there. So we have these gates of hell. Now either the Bible is wrong because in our culture it seems to me there's been enough barriers built to keep God, Christ, Jesus, his church out And we are losing or have lost the cultural war, ladies and gentlemen. Therefore, we have these gates of hell, but Christ says they will not prevail. So how do we barge in, break in the church, the gates of hell? I'm going to tell you a secret. All of us. Yeah, already on the other side of the gates of hell. We're in our school systems. We're in our government. We're in our media. We're in in the corporate world. We're already there, but we've gotten in there and we've gotten quiet. I don't want anybody to know. I I won't breach any of the un- Spoken laws here. I don't want to offend anybody with my Christian faith. You see We're already there those who are part of the body of Christ. We've only been silenced and marginalized and we backed up and Generally we say nothing Now here's the challenge let's be honest Jesus got inside the gates of hell in his day. How did he conduct himself? Number one, those of us he bumped into in the gates of hell who pretended to be religious and pious and holy and better than anybody else, he dealt with them strongly, firmly, and he condemned them in no uncertain sound. That's what he did with those who were religious folks behind the gates of hell. How did he deal with those behind the gates of hell who didn't know, who were throwaway people, who were empty people, who were confused, who were lost, who didn't know anything about a true and living God? How did he deal with them? The the adulterers, the fornicators, those who were profane, those who were immoral, those who were thieves, how did he deal with them? He dealt with them with love, compassion, understanding, grace. He lived before them the power of love, and ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more powerful in the world than love when you get inside the gates of hell. So what are we to do? The church, The witness of those who are in Christ, who are in the body of Christ. The the gates of hell will not stop us because most of us are already living in our culture and therefore we must live as Christ lived behind the lines of the enemy and that was to condemn those who pretend that they knew it all and to love those who were broken and had little hope and that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ anytime, anywhere, especially and particularly when we get inside and we live inside the gates of hell. This is it, he hath sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him. Be jubilant on our feet. Our God is marching on.